Welcome back to Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. I'm personal financial planner, columnist, and financial therapist, Rick Kaler. Research tells us that 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. For nearly four decades, I've been helping people make better money decisions. So what makes my financial worldview different from most financial experts? I blend the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Good money decisions are not just about the money. So let's get started with today's episode. Welcome back to the second episode of talking about financial infidelity. So we kind of went through examples in the last episode of what financial fidelity would look like. And I also ended saying that not all money secrets add up to financial infidelities. I don't think partners should need to account to each other for every penny they spend. Autonomy and control are pretty important needs for all of us. So, for example, saving on the sly for your spouse's birthday gift is a lot different from lying about the cost of that new computer accessory that you just had to have. Secrets will cross the line into infidelity when they are for the purpose of protecting you from the consequences of your financial behavior. So in an IFS frame, we have protectors and exiles, and those protectors are forced into that role when, uh, when there's parts of ourselves that are wounded, that are traumatized that have never worked through those feelings or had an opportunity to work through them or be old enough to even understand what that is. So these protectors will force us into a behavior that is secretive because we are protecting a part of ourselves that from usually a pretty uh, significant trigger. And the trigger can be around anything. Typically, there's extreme beliefs involved that maybe are way more intense than if the truth was just told to the partner. It may not be as terrible or it could be something that could be more easily worked out than what the person is imagining, what that part of themselves is imagining. So, uh, getting back to the, the need for privacy. Financial privacy is not the same as secrets. With financial privacy, the relationship is known to the other partner, right? So privacy is surrounding a tacit agreement that, say, disclosing all spending or or not disclosing that that, uh, spending is known. And it's a conscious agreement. So, for for example, if we have an agreement that I can spend so much money or I can borrow so much or give so much or whatever it is, and I don't have to, to disclose how I'm doing that or when I'm doing that, that could um, easily fit within the parameters of privacy, not 
a secret. I think that it could be uh, my partner knows that I have a relationship with a person. <clears throat> could be male or female. And that I meet with them and occasionally they may tell me something that they don't want divulged to other people. That could be uh, completely appropriate, right? Uh, it's around privacy. You're not hiding the relationship. You are respecting the privacy of another person. Or you have an agreement with your spouse. It could be an implicit agreement that, well, when somebody is telling me something about themselves or their situations that they don't want disclosed, I'm not going to disclose it. And I, you know, I can think of, for example, if you go to group therapy, well, uh, you know, major agreement in group therapy is what you see here, what you say here, it must stay here, right? So that's the type of privacy that I'm talking about. So we've got to look at whether a, a money issue, is it secrecy or is it privacy, at the intention, the reason behind the decision. And here's kind of a, a rule of thumb that I found is if you don't have a lot of energy around the matter one way or another, it's pro probably a privacy issue. But if you would feel really embarrassed, ashamed, and comfortable with your spouse knowing something, it's probably a potentially destructive secret, right? If we have an agreement that I don't, I can spend whatever I get a week, let's just say it's three or $400 on whatever I want. I don't have any fear of shame around saying, yeah, I, I spent it for a latte. I spent it over here on a new dress or a suit or whatever it is. So it's feeling embarrassed or shame, a lot of uh, difficult emotions around it. And a way to judge this is there's kind of a simple way to do this. If you really really don't want to talk about it, then talking about it to your partner is probably exactly what you need to do. So here's some situations in a relationship that might uh, foster secret spending or financial infidelity. And accordingly, the first one's not talking about it, not talking about money. Just inherent in a coupleship, it's a partnership in a, a, um, a marriage is certainly a business relationship. And um, many um, partnerships that are not marital are, are an equally, uh, can be an equally committed business relationship. They could be an uncommitted business relationship too. But I think for most couples, they need to work together financially. Right. I mean, you've got to be able to talk about priorities and goals and difficulties. Money touches everything we do. We've got to be able to discuss our financial needs. And that comes down to knowing one another's income, knowing the liabilities, the debts that they sign on to 
many times a partner can be equally responsible for debts as the one that's racking up the debt. They need to have an idea of what the net worth is. Otherwise, without that information, it's really hard to work together. It's really hard to create a joint spending plan. It's really hard to understand, are we going to be comfortable in retirement? How much can we give to charities? I mean, it, the list can just go on and on and on. When we can't talk about money, it is... Um, definitely creating the atmosphere for financial infidelity. Another one is when one partner chooses to stay ignorant about family finances. And I see this a lot in financial planning. And so it's not unusual for one partner to be a little more financial savvy or they have that interest, right? I, if you're financial savvy, I think you need to have an interest in an acumen in being financial savvy. And another partner being more money avoidant, the financial savvy is usually money vigilant, being money avoidant, and just not interested, not participating in it. So it, it could look like where the money vigilant comes home and says, hey, here's all the joint tax returns to sign, uh, sign this, sign that, and the other spouse just signs it without looking, without asking any questions. What is this? Just to give me some basics. And there could be a lot of emotional dynamic around asking those questions. Like, I can't ask those questions, or they would think that I don't trust them, and it's important to be engaged. It's important when you're signing something to have a general idea of what you're signing. Because when you sign it, inevitably the fine print in there says you understand and take full responsibility for signing this. That person could also not want anything to do with balancing the checkbooks or paying bills. Now, I mean, honestly, I am guilty of that. I have a checkbook for my spending, but I rarely look at our joint checking account. And my wife uh, takes responsibility for the household bills. So I have developed uh, a huge amount of trust in her ability to do that. And there's nothing popping up that where my alarm bells would be going off or inconsistencies or things like that. So I'm not saying that you can't have this type of relationship. I'm saying like if I went and asked my wife for the check checkbook and I looked through the checkbook or I wanted to understand what the bills were, there would be no uh, pushback from that. I've done that on occasion. So it's not that I have completely turned a blind eye and, and know nothing about what our finances are. So, and just because another partner is not engaged or not 
savvy about bill paying or the mechanics of balancing a checking account doesn't justify the other partner cheating, right? But that super passive behavior in this area can open the door for cheating or being taken advantage of. So it's the super passive behavior, the complete disengagement from money that is the issue. It's uh, refusing to be involved as an equal partner in the financial aspect of the relationship that can lay a foundation for financial infidelity. Now, another thing that can come up is when one of those partners is a financial bully and is not going to look at this as an equal relationship, wants to control the finances completely or put unreasonable limits on spending. I mean, maybe the income is ten or 20000 a month and the spouse gets $100 a month for spending or something crazy or anytime if you spend more than $25, I need to know about it. So that other partner that's uh, subject to the bullying can obviously feel pretty powerless around this and as a result start to keep secrets, start to hide money, start to squirrel aside money that maybe they even need for the joint benefit of the family. You could have the situation where the bullier is committing financial infidelity and the one being bullied is committing financial infidelity. And sometimes it could be out of survival. So any type of financial bullying can, I mean, it's any bullying, right, is very detrimental to any any type of relationship. Maybe similar to bullying could be a relationship where one partner is the financial parent and the other one is the child. And this would all be in the context of money, spending. And I think a couple can slip into this relationship. Again, if you have one who is a little different than the other things we've talked about, say more responsible about money, does money well, well, it could earn the money or it could not earn the bulk of the money, but is really responsible. And the other one is maybe more money avoidant or the spender, the, the designated patient of the two, right? So one's the parent. I'm going to help you control your behavior and I know best. It can also, this dynamic can pop up too if you've got one partner that came into the marriage with significantly more assets than the other and is looked on as the parent or looked on this is their money and it, they're, they're not equals in this relationship, right? Parent and children are not equals. Typically, children have to ask for permission to do things. And in this case, it would be permission to spend the money. 
So we're talking about a relationship here where there's inequality. And, you know, uh, the couple could be equals in everything else, except when it comes to money. I mean, how often have I heard, we get along great. We have a great relationship, except when it comes to money. That is so common. So when you have this inequality, when you have this parent-child relationship between par partners, that can lead to resentment on the part of the person in the role of the child financially and lead to secret spending. Obviously, the parent, children don't know what parents do with things, <laughs> and it could lead to financial infidelity on, on the parent's part, the spouse playing the parent as well. Another one would be closing your eyes to inconsistencies that you see. Maybe inconsistencies in credit card bills or bank accounts. Somewhere, financial infidelity is leaving a trace. It's leaving a record. We are not the federal government. We cannot print money <laughs> legally, right? So, unless uh, your partner is counterfeiting and printing money, there is a paper trail here to where that secret spending in this case is coming from, whether the money may be coming from loans that are being purchased or, or income that's not reported. It has to come from somewhere and it has to go somewhere. So you may be aware that a partner earns a ton of money, but you can't see where it's going. And it doesn't need it mean it needs to be spent. It could be going to a retirement account or savings, but it's going somewhere and there's a paper trail, electronic trail somewhere of where it's going. So this can be, um, you know, unexplained cash withdrawals that come out of an account. A really large credit card balance. Maybe you don't look at the credit card. You have no idea what you owe on the credit cards. Maybe they're grocery bills that are unrealistically high. Well, back in the day, I suppose it still could be done now, uh, you could go to the grocery store and write a $100 check and buy $20 worth of, of goods and they would cash you out the 80 I doubt that that's quite as possible today. But still, it's possible. The point is, wow, and that was 100 or 200 or $500 worth of groceries. We, we don't consume that in a week. What else was included on that grocery bill? You know, it could be $100 of food and $400 of alcohol. So these are all examples of possible signs that a spouse is spending money in secret. Another one is choosing not to notice the number of new clothes, electronic items, household items that mysteriously appear and seem excessive for the family budget. I've known of cases like this. This would be true, I mean, uh, even if the partner 
shops at Walmart rather than designer stores and bringing home bags and bags of stuff from every shopping trip means that somewhere serious money is being spent. And as we talked about before, sometimes those bags and bags are hidden and you don't see them coming in. So the partner is not paying attention to all of this or all the new possessions or where is this coming from Maybe truly clueless. Or they may be carefully not asking difficult questions, knowing that they're going to get a backlash or immediate anger outburst, like, what, don't you trust me? That could lead to conflict, could lead to a painful conversation and confrontation about money. Another one is unresolved conflicts in the relationship. So in a painful relationship, one partner might use spending to get even with the other. Spending could also be a way to feel better or just as a distraction from the conflict. Could be, well, wow, this relationship isn't good. Let's focus on buying a new home or let's focus on taking a a vacation. Now, in that case, it's not financial infidelity because both partners are in on it. But if there is revenge spending going on, right, or secret spending to feel better, that would certainly be financial infidelity. There's other things that are less clear. For example, a couple's agreed to keep their income and assets separate and they've established a method of sharing the expenses that are their joint responsibility, that doesn't feel like infidelity. Maybe one spouse owns a separate business where the other spouse isn't involved. So it's reasonable for the non-owner spouse to be kept informed of big things like earnings or significant changes or problems. But the details of the day-to-day financial affairs of the company or corporation aren't necessarily the non-owner's concern. So we're not talking about clearing every expenditure or financial decision of a, a business, again, where the other spouse is just not involved in it. And also when spouses are in a second marriage or have children from previous marriages, and they have brought assets into the relationship, it's quite, quite normal that these assets are kept separately. Again, the key is those assets are typically known and not a secret. So in all of these examples, it isn't possible to define a one-size-fits-all boundary between privacy and secrecy. Each couple needs to draw that boundary for themselves from a very conscious and aware position, right? Depending on the specific circumstances of their relationship. And as I I said, financial infidelity isn't necessarily the problem. It's the symptom of the problem. It's usually tangled up with other difficulties in the relationship, but it will always exacerbate those problems. And 
the good news is even though financial infidelity is very damaging, like any infidelity or affair, it's something that a couple can face and heal from. And oftentimes there's a need to do a couple's financial therapy around a financial infidelity, which can really help with the difficult conversation and help provide safety around that courageous conversation. So that's where I'll leave this for this particular episode. It looks like we're going to have yet another episode to where we will talk about uh, the good news and how we can recover from financial infidelity. So thanks so much for joining me. I look forward to being with you next time. Take care. Thanks for joining me, Rick Kaler, for another episode of Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. This is where I combine the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Remember, every financial behavior, whether it appears illogical to you or others, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs, feelings, and thoughts. Sign up for my weekly blog at financialawakenings.com. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode.